I have a calendar that hangs in my office, but this calendar doesn't run from January through December. It runs from November, sorry, it runs from December through November because it's a liturgical calendar. And this is, this is a pastor's present. And in fact, it was a pastor who gave it to me. <laughs> and if you look inside, it has the dates, but it has more than a month because it's set up by the different seasons of the liturgical year. And if you look on Sundays, it has all of the readings for the liturgical year. And this is the calendar by which many of our services are planned, from which our scripture readings come. And today is an important day on our liturgical calendar because it is the final Sunday of the liturgical year or the Christian year. It is Reign of Christ Sunday, where Jesus is enthroned as a righteous ruler of a new kingdom which gathers people from every nation, where righteousness and justice reign in glory and humanity rests in peace. And today, we see Christ enthroned through the perspective of the author of Matthew. And in fact, this teaching is unique to Matthew. We don't hear this portion of scripture in any of the other three Gospels. And that's no mistake. Because each Gospel account focuses on particular characteristics of Jesus that they want to bring to the forefront of their theological biographies. And Matthew's Gospel is primarily concerned with Jesus as the humble and compassionate Messiah, the chosen one who will rule over all the nations. And doesn't that just come through this morning in our gospel text? I noticed that it was a little bit harder for us to say thanks be to God after the gospel reading, wasn't it? This morning's a tough one. So we're going to dig in. And it might not be easy, but I think there's some good news packed in here, if we know how to find it. Matthew is comprised of five sections, or five discourses of Jesus, teachings of Jesus. And the book has been building to this point in the gospel throughout the whole thing. We start with the Sermon on the Mount. Then we have Jesus' missionary discourse, where Jesus is preaching about the kingdom of God that is to come. And then we have the parable discourse, where Jesus starts to explore the mysteries of that kingdom that is coming through these veiled stories. Then we have the community discourse, where Jesus starts to talk about the values of this kingdom and how they have direct impact on the values of the church. And then finally, that all leads up to the apocalyptic discourse, where Jesus describes the implications of all of this teaching on the final days. The ultimate vision. Where is all this going? In Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46, is the finale of Jesus' apocalyptic discourse. 
Now, apocalyptic literature is found all throughout the Bible. The word apocalypse means to uncover or reveal, but of course we always have in mind images of the end, right? What is happening after death? What is the kingdom that is to come? In this genre, prophets and teachers share visions of otherworldly scenes which often depict the end or the last days, in order to affirm the importance of how we live life now, day to day. So while parables take ordinary situations and explore the mysteries of the kingdom, apocalyptic literature takes otherworldly kingdom images in order to tell us truths about ordinary everyday life. And that genre tends to be one that we often find uncomfortable because it's filled with metaphors surrounding judgment. It often includes some violent imagery. And from our contemporary lens, like those things aren't that exciting to us anymore. We don't like the idea of judgment. So it's important that we notice how our own social location is different from the original readers of this text. But my professor, Dr. O'Brien, Dr. O'Brien, teaches that the role of the preacher is to ask themselves two questions whenever they're approaching scriptures. The first is, what is the good news? And the second is, who is the good news for? And in the ancient Near East, apocalyptic messages were indeed good news, interpreted as messages of hope. In Matthew's social setting, this apocalyptic language addresses those who experience themselves as outsiders, who have been rejected by the powerful. In this world, and it encourages them with pictures of a grand reversal the good news is, the way it is now, it's not always going to be that way. At the end, in my kingdom, things are going to be upside down. The last will be first. The first will be last. Those who have been oppressing, they will have to stand to account. Because this kind of behavior, it's just not going to stand in my kingdom. And for people living under oppressive rule... That's really good news. It's huge, in fact. A grand reversal. And it's that upside-down kingdom that we're talking about when we're talking about apocalyptic literature. Now, apocalyptic literature is good news for people on the underside of the power system. Now in this scene, in order to convey good news to his disciples, Jesus harkens back to a metaphor from the Old Testament. In Ezekiel chapter 34, and in it the prophet rebukes false shepherds, leaders of the time, who have been feeding themselves instead of gathering up the people from the nations and caring for them well. So in Ezekiel 34, God says to the people, I myself will become the shepherd of my sheep, and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek the lost, 
I will bring back the strays, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, but the fat and strong I will destroy. I will feed them with justice. Now, for any writers in the room, that last line, I will feed them with justice. So as Jesus is nearing the end of his life, he uses this imagery from Ezekiel to say to his audiences that would be familiar with it, God as the good shepherd who will gather up his people from every nation, that's me. I'm him. I'm the shepherd king who will care for and sort out the sheep. You don't have to worry about it. And those who have sown seeds of oppression, who have misused my name, they will be held to account. And for my people on the underside who have been stepped on by the empire, who have been stepped on by religious elite, this is good news. So Jesus describes an otherworldly scene in which he returns to the earth seated on a throne. And just like in Ezekiel, Jesus is imaged as the shepherd who has gathered all the nations to himself and begins sorting the righteous from the unrighteous. And his revelation to the people in this scene shocks them for a couple reasons. First, The criteria of judgment in this scene is not what the people were expecting. There's no talk of professed faith. There's no talk of forgiveness of sins. There's no talk of the work on the cross. What matters in this particular scene in Matthew is the way that people have responded to their neighbors. And Jesus lays out six works of mercy by which the people will be measured. Feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, welcoming the stranger, clothing the naked, visiting the sick, caring for those who are in prison. There's no mention of doctrine there. Jesus is saying, this is the lens through which I know your faith. As we heard last week from 1 John chapter 3, do not love one another in word or in speech, but in deed and in truth. Faithfulness is measured in this scene by pragmatic acts of service and tangible love. Now, as we engage this Matthew text, you are not hearing me say, that what we believe doesn't matter. So I just want to make that really clear. But this scene in Matthew clues us in, perhaps, on the clearest window into the beliefs of our heart. It's where our faith can be seen. The way we conduct ourselves with our neighbors. Jesus is pulling the people up short here. Does it not make us a little uncomfortable? How many of us in the room can honestly say, yeah, there have been times in my life I I have fed the hungry. I've 
helped clothe the naked. I've given people drinks when they're thirsty. I've taken care of the sick. Probably for most of us, we've done that. How many of us in this room can say to ourselves, gosh, there have been many times where I have not fed the hungry. I've, I've not given drink to someone who's thirsty. I've, I've not visited someone in prison. Probably for most of us, that is very true, right? It's an unsettling notion, and perhaps, just perhaps, that's exactly what it's supposed to be. Something that stirs us, that unsettles us, that discomforts us. As I was reading this passage, I couldn't help but be reminded of the famous debate on the Dick Cavett show between Paul Weiss and James Baldwin. And during that interview, Baldwin articulates this truth quite well that that our actions actually show the window to how we might feel. He's talking about this truth while speaking of the realities of racism and he said, you are asking me to do something impossible. You're asking me to take the will for the deed. I don't know what most white people in this country feel, but I can only include what they feel from the state of our institutions. I don't know if white Christians hate Negroes or not, but I know we have a Christian church which is white and a Christian church which is black. I know, as Malcolm X once put it, the most segregated hour in American life is high noon on Sunday. That says a great deal for me about a Christian nation. It means I can't afford to trust most white Christians, and I certainly cannot trust the Christian church. I don't know whether the labor unions and their bosses really hate me. That doesn't matter. But I know I'm not in their unions. I don't know if the real estate lobby has anything against black people, but I know the real estate lobby is keeping me in the ghetto. In fact, just a few weeks ago, several of you sent around emails talking about how you had realized redlining was happening in houses that you yourselves have purchased, right? It's deep. I don't know if the Board of Education hates black people, but I know the textbooks they give my children to read and the schools that we have to go to. Now this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my life, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. This is exactly what James Baldwin is getting at. You want me to trust in what you believe, but don't you see the window to how you feel? And what you believe is birthed in how you treat your neighbor. And those words still cut us deep today. This isn't to say that words and deeds are the same thing, but perhaps, just perhaps, they speak through one another. This was a shocking notion. The second shocking notion is that apocalyptic drama, in this this apocalyptic drama, both the sheep and the goats are utterly shocked 
when Jesus reveals that all these people, the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the stranger, the sick, the imprisoned, that that was Christ. Notice, he doesn't say, you fed the hungry as if they were me, and that was really great. No, in this passage, Jesus doesn't simply identify with the hungry, with the thirsty, with the sick. Jesus identifies as the hungry, as the sick, as those imprisoned. That connection is so strong. It's this magnificent grace that happens where Jesus is met in the people that we meet every day. Some people refer to this mystical transference as the hidden Christ. And you see an image on the front of your bulletin of the Jesus of the bread lines. It was a medieval print that kind of shows how Jesus is just standing amongst us. There was another uh, rendition of an image like this, a sculpture that was made where Jesus is lying under a blanket on a park bench. And in fact... When this statue was installed, police started getting calls that there were people sleeping in the park and that the police should respond. And it was just the sculpture of Christ. It shows our hearts, doesn't it? Christ is in all waiting to be fed, waiting to be quenched, waiting to be loved, to be recognized in those who do the will of the Father and the people whom he calls his brothers and his sisters. And he tells us four times in a row how we are to respond, right? Like if we're missing the point, if I'm sounding repetitive, look at the scripture, people. It's four times right in a row he says the same exact sentence, right? When I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When, Jesus, when did we see you hungry and give you food? When did we see you thirsty and give you drink? That which you have done to the least of these, you've done to me. And just to be really clear, when we say the least of these, we're not talking about the least of these in God's eyes. We're talking about the least of these in our eyes. When we serve the meals to our guests on Monday evenings, it's Christ. When Beth welcomes families in with a warm smile, she's welcoming in Christ. When Becky goes around and gets their coffee order and asks if they want tea or hot chocolate, which is really popular, <laughs> it's Christ. When the kids come up to the coffee table and they start mixing their own cocoa and making a mess everywhere, it's Christ. when you've tended your sick neighbor, when you've welcomed refugee families into new homes and furnished them and helped teach them how to drive, it's Christ. And when we don't, it's Christ. 
when I've walked by out of busyness or fatigue or my own negative assumptions, it was Christ. When I lived two blocks from the prison and never once stepped inside, it was Christ. A woman came through our meal line pretty early in our five to six hour window and asked for six meals to go because she was taking home to her family. And I have to confess, I had my doubts about where that food was going. And uh, we know, we, we talk about during the community meal that whoever is eating the food, the food is getting eaten and it's going to people who are hungry and that is fine. But I had all these assumptions about this woman. And two weeks later, when I came back, that woman came in with her five children. And it was Christ. Christ denied and Christ received, not because I recognized Christ, but because because they happened to show up, right? And that reality is really unsettling. There's a story in a book called Good Goats that talks about this, where they're reading this this story, this apocalyptic scene, and it's in a it's in a nunnery. And one of the nuns said, Oh gosh, I think I get it. I think we're all maybe good goats. We all identify with both sheep and goat. And that's precisely what Matthew is trying to do in this scene that he sets up. Where Christ is telling us, what does it look like when I reign? It looks like things go asunder. It looks like those on the underside of oppression are lifted up. It looks like people held to account. It looks like Christ recognized and unrecognized. But regardless, you are not alone. I am here. I am in every face that you meet. The shepherd king that reigns in justice, calling us to love one another, not just in word or in speech, but in deed and in truth. Amen.